0: I started asking questions about who not just you know what digital technologies were doing for me, but how digital technologies were forming me. And as I began asking those questions, I realized I'm becoming the sort of person I don't want to become.
1: It's watering time, everybody. It's time for a power. Watered, A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God So that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations Do you ever feel an overwhelming sense of dis-ease, discontentment that no matter what you do, you're tense, you're worked up, envious, maybe even mad. I know because I feel that all the time. <laughs> I really do. And it's something that I'm really trying to give to God because it's a struggle for me. I feel this disease. I want to connect with God. I want to continue on. And then there's my phone and then there's the computer. And then next thing you know, all this time has just evaporated. What if I told you that for all of the good things in our digital world, that it's also just exacerbating our problems. I know that it's true for me. Maybe it is for you too. Our digital world is designed to keep us scrolling and they are doing an excellent job, but I'm getting sick of it. They keep us envying, it keeps giving us temporary pleasure that leads to long-term angst and pain. About a year and a half ago, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with pastor and author J.Y. Kim about his book, Analog Church. A book that came out like two weeks before the pandemic lockdown started, and it's episode 84 if you haven't listened. In that episode, though, we talked about the importance of being in church, being with the body, rather than just watching it streamed. There's something about being there with other believers that can't be replicated via Zoom. We need to be embodied in our worship with other believers in Jesus. Well, today, Jay is back talking about his new book, Analog Christian. Hopefully, that doesn't mean that we're going to have another lockdown anytime soon, but I did really want him to come back on the show because he had a very wise and insightful perspective for us, bringing the fruit of the spirit to bear on today's hectic digital landscape. Jay is the lead pastor of Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley, and I think you're going to find today's conversation both challenging and uplifting. But before we get to Jay, we can't provide you with the watering voices of the faith without your help. We need your financial support. That's just straight up. That's what it is. Go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button because there's a link in your show notes and it's not just supporting this show, but it's allowing us to be able to do all of these things that God has laid upon our hearts because we want to help you to water the world where you're at. We want to help renew the church. And how do we do that? By helping engaged believers in Jesus to rethink, reimagine, and redeploy in their pursuit of Christ's mission in all of life. That's why we exist. We wanna help you fulfill the mission that God has for you where you are. That's why we bring you these voices. That's why we bring you these episodes. That's why we have our YouTube channel, to help you to be able to water your world where you're at. And that's why we can't do this by ourselves. We need your support. You can just simply click the link in the show notes and select the amount that works for you. And you will be glad that you did because you're enabling thirsty souls around the world to get the water of life. Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with J.Y. Kim. Happy listening.
0: J. Kim, welcome back to Apollos Water. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Excited to be back. It's been a while. Been a while. It's been a while. Yes. Yes. In COVID years, it feels like it's been decades, but I don't know. Oh yeah, that's true.
1: You know, I, I feel like I've lost all sense of time. The right. only way that I know how to measure it is by, and this is terrible, but by looking at the hair color of celebrities, because <laughs> if they let it go, that's how I know it's been a while. Yes, that very true. Very true. Who knows? Yeah. But you remember, you know the drill. Are you
0: ready for the fast five? Uh, I'm not ready, but I'm I'm game. But you're willing. You're willing. That's the important thing. All right. Always willing. So here we go.
1: Number one, the hobby you always wanted to take up, but you haven't yet. What's that?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, Running. I've run before, but I admire runners, people who enjoy running. I hate it. But I've sort of (laughs) always wanted to be that type of person, but I'm just not. So is that a hobby? That's probably not a hobby. It's like a way of life.
1: But it is. But you mentioned a guy in the book who started taking up jogging or running
0: triathlons. Yeah. Yeah. My friend, 40. Yeah. And now he's world, he's world class. He's ranked in his age bracket.
1: Yeah. Praise God for him. That's never (laughs) going to be me. It's just never going to be me. Me neither. Me neither. Okay. Now, in your your book, you talk about being raised with a Korean mother. Your mom came over when into the United States?
0: uh 19 Uh, was she born here no 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 i was born in korea as well uh oh we came over in the very early 80s i think 83 maybe 84 something like that
1: so here's my question then for you knowing a little bit more of your cultural background what's the one korean dish that people need to give a second chance to or you just want to introduce to how about that maybe not even second chance maybe people don't even know what it is
0: oh my gosh okay well, I think Korean food is sort of on the map now. So it is. It is. You know, like when I when I was growing up, friends would come over and they would smell the kimchi in my fridge and be like, oh, gross, what's that? Nowadays, people are like, oh yeah, I love that stuff, you know. So I would say something people probably don't know as well about Korean foods. One of my favorites, it's called Sunde. Um, it's Korean blood sausage. And Ooh. it's incredible. And uh, it's an acquired taste. You got you to gotta give it a, a good solid try, you know, give it a go, maybe multiple times, but it's incredible. So sfunde, that would be the dish.
1: Okay, so I know I've heard it before, but what makes it a blood sausage? I always forget. I,
0: yeah, I don't really know. I, I don't I never know. know what that is. I think they pour I, blood on it. I, I don't know. I really <laughs> don't know. I just know it's awesome. <laughs> I know it's awesome. I, I, you know it's funny. You mentioned in the, the ki- words of in the words of Aaron Neville. I don't know much, but I know I love you. That's that's what I would say. That's how I feel about Sunday.
1: You, you know. You know it's funny that going back to the the kimchi. My brother in law lived in South Korea for oh, five cool. years. He he lived with us for the next five years after that, and so or a few years I can't remember. But he was always cooking with Korean spices and dishes and I loved it. So I actually have kimchi in my fridge right now.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> well, it's it's delicious and it's like really good for you, actually. Health it is. is. Yeah.
1: So good from a digestion standpoint. I mean, yeah. it is a little spicy, but he would yes. like cook it and oh, yeah. it was so, so yeah, good. it's so good. the best. Okay. Next question here. If you were a car,
0: what car would you be and why? Oh my goodness. What a question. Um... I would probably be a Honda CRV. Isn't that I'm, what you drive now? Yeah, that is what I drive now. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's why you I read, said you it. You included that in the book. You included that in the book. I remember. Yeah, it's reliable, spacious, but not too spacious. It's not. It's not flashy, but it's solid. I think that's me. I, I love know. that. <laughs> I love that.
1: I always like to ask people. I don't
0: know. (laughs) (laughs) It's very dependable.
1: That's for sure. Okay. Well, number four, if you could travel to one place in the
0: entire world, where would it be and why? Japan. Yeah. Japan. I mean, it feels like food is thematic here, but I love (laughs) Japanese food. Jenny and I talk about this a lot, sort of our list of Places, you know, in order, ranked in order, where we would like to go. And for both of us, Japan is the one place at the very top of the list where we've never been, neither of us, but would love to go. So I have a bit of a YouTube vice every now and then. There are these Japanese vloggers that will film these Japanese diners. And uh, there are these like 40 minute long videos of just, there's no talking. It's literally just a video of the chef at this diner cooking sort of home style Japanese food, serving it in this small little corner diner all over Japan, all these different diners. And I I will watch those sometimes and just like, I got to get there. So there you go. Japan. Yeah. I want you to send me a link because that sounds okay. like so much fun. I'm it's so pretty serious. awesome. It's awesome. It's so yeah, I'll send you
1: a link. Oh, because uh, Japanese food to me is also the prettiest food. It's the most yes. beautiful aesthetically. Yes, just gorgeous, beautiful. Yes, there was this Netflix special of this guy who had a sushi restaurant. I think in yeah, Jiro dreams of sushi. Oh, I love that show.
0: Yes, it's yes. so good. Yeah. So good. He's your- considered widely the greatest sushi chef in history. Yeah, he is. He's the Michael Jordan of of
1: sushi. But it's almost depressing because like some of these guys would train under him and they had to do like rice for seven years. That's all you ever did was rice. (laughs) And I'm like, no way. There's no way. I would have been like seven days. I'm done. I'm done. Seven hours.
0: I'd be done. Yeah, it's an art. It's an art form to them. Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: I'm the only person that I know that can screw up rice in a rice cooker. I'm the only one. Like, I actually did it last night for the second time. I made dinner for my family and my wife was like, What did you do to the rice? It's like mush. It's like gelatin. I'm like, I don't know. I just did it. I did the knuckle thing. She's like, Of course. So, you can't even have you make rice. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, honey. Sorry, honey. Okay. Number five. How about this one? Since you are in Silicon Valley, uh, yeah. how about this? If you were an app, what app would
0: you be in? Why? Oh my gosh, what a question. Holy smokes. That's I is guess a hard I'd, question. Yeah, that's a tough one. I guess I would say maybe like kayak. You know, kayak. Oh, looking for deals. Book flights and yeah. yeah. And I guess I say that because I'm uh I'm quite curious about the world. You know, you asked about travel. I would love yeah. to see as much of the world as possible. So maybe kayak. Yeah, I think that embodies a bit of a, uh, a bit of who I am. I like that the
1: kind of, I was trying to think of an app that only works half the time. That's what <laughs> I would be. That's pretty would, good. That would be me. I would be That's like whatever weird. app just keeps conking out and it doesn't work when it's supposed to. That would be me. All right, let's jump into the book. Analog Christian, and I know we had talked about this briefly. You had alluded to it. You said it was coming out. You were just finishing it up the last time that we were here. Hmm. And it's Analog Christian. Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. So let's talk about this. Why did you write this book?
0: Yeah, I mean, the subtitle sort of gives it away, the why. I just found myself personally in recent years before the pandemic, but then also sort of accelerated and revealed during the pandemic. I felt in my own life the sort of rising tide of discontentment and fragility and foolishness not all because of the digital age or social media but certainly accelerated by the digital age so i started asking questions about not just you know what digital technologies were doing for me but how digital technologies were forming me and as i began asking those questions i realized i'm becoming the sort of person i don't want to become there are sort of characteristics that are being accentuated in my life that I don't think are helpful and are maybe even destructive in some ways. So I began, again, this was even, you know, before the pandemic. I I just I started sort of prayerfully considering why and what the scriptures might have to say about those things and I found myself sort of going back over and over again to Paul's words, to the early Christians in Galatia, you know, that famous passage about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, where he says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, on and on. And I just kept finding myself kind of going back to that text and finding a lot of hope and beyond hope, just a lot of practical help. Man, those characteristics are really, truly the antidote. To so much that ails us, ails me uh, because of my digital addictions and, you know, social media proclivities and and all of that. So that's really where the book came from. And again, it was, you know, these were ideas that were ruminating long before the pandemic. But as I was writing and then the pandemic hit, it's just accentuated it all the more.
1: Reading the book, there was a part of me that as you were describing these, as you mentioned, the proclivities, I was getting mad because I was like, I already know it. I feel it. Yeah. And it was good to have someone identify it. I think give the language to it was really nice and helpful. But at the same time, instead of like feeling like I was an analog Christian, I was feeling analog guilt. I mean, (laughs) that's what it felt like. I, I just was like, darn it. You know what I mean? Like, how am I really cultivating the fruits of the spirit? And and one of the things that I, I liked about what you did is you mentioned this part, you heard a pastor talk about the when, then that was early on. Do you remember that? Yeah. Can you elaborate? Because
0: I think that really, truly captures where many of us are right now. I think I mentioned that in the chapter on maybe comparison and joy, or maybe it's a different chapter, but either way. The when then concept, such a simple idea, but it's so helpful. I heard it from, uh, there's a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Mark Batterson, and he said it during a teaching that he gave at his church in D.C. And the whole concept is basically that we believe this lie. It's a myth, but, but so many of us believe the idea of when then, meaning when I have fill in the blank, then I will be, you know, happy. Or satisfied, or content, or fulfilled, or whatever, and that's a myth. There's a British psychologist named Michael Asink, uh, and I mention it in the book. He he has this concept. He coined the phrase "the hedonic treadmill," and by that, what he meant was, you know, hedonic meaning hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. He suggests he's not a Christian; he's just a psychologist, secular psychologist. He suggests. That in the modern Western industrialized world, most people live on a hedonic treadmill, meaning we are constantly chasing pleasure or that which feels good, but it's a treadmill because when you run on a treadmill, you don't actually get anywhere. You're just constantly running in place. And what he meant was the constant pursuit of pleasure is futile because you'll never ever actually reach the sort of contentment that you think the feeling good will offer you. Because the moment you have it, it doesn't feel that good anymore. And now there's something else. There's another carrot dangling in front of you. And that's the whole concept of when then. And I think, especially in the digital age, with sort of the algorithms propagating and fueling the comparison game, you think about just scrolling your Instagram feed, And whether you know it or not, subconsciously, at least what is happening is most of us are comparing the mundane, ordinary rhythms of our actual lived lives with the filtered, glossy highlights of everybody else's highlights. And we know intellectually, okay, that's not what their life is like 24-7 all the time. But even though we know that intellectually, in our bodies, what we feel is, oh man, I'm not measuring up. Like my life doesn't look and it doesn't feel like the amazing life that everybody else is living, at least the life they're living on Instagram. So then we begin to believe, okay, when my life looks like that, then I'll be happy, satisfied, content. But in reality, I think life in the spirit cultivates within us a sense of deep contentment, joy. You know, receiving and giving the love of God, the peace of God in the midst of all the chaos around us. God offers that to us by his spirit here and now, not when our lives look like whatever, but right now in the midst of whatever pain, whatever struggle, whatever ups or downs, whatever peaks or valleys we're going through. It's not when, then, it's right here, right now. If we are living, life with God, you know, the with God life, as Dallas Willard loved to put it, there is a way in which we can experience deep, meaningful contentment, regardless of what our situation and circumstances may be. We're going to take a
1: quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand you're talking about the digital age i mean i love how you've cultivated it or put it within the fruits of the spirit and use that as a counter as james K. A. smith says that counter liturgy i mean that counter practice like you, you identify one and then you go to the other but one of the things that actually captured me from the very beginning in the book was when you you actually write about cigarette companies or tobacco companies because that hit me really hard because i've been trying to say this to my children i see this in myself but I'm seeing it in my kids even more because they're digital natives. But it's, it's crept up around me. Where my kids were little, I would do dishes and I would have the computer on with some TV show that I could watch. Or when smartphones came around, I was doing that. And then you wonder why your kids are doing it. And I'm, I'm watching them seeing it amplified even further than it is in me. It's really starting to bother me. And so I, I'm always yelling at them like, you know, this is bad, this is bad. But when you presented it this way, Comparing it to tobacco companies, it hit me. I want you for our audience to just elaborate on why you brought that out. The digital smoke, analog air, and fruit. I mean, you really set the stage with that there. And I know you've alluded to it already, but.
0: Yeah. 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 I tell a story about, you know, in the 1940s, about 40% of American adults smoked cigarettes, at least socially, many of them regularly now that number that percentage is down to around 10%, 10 to 12% today. So you think about just the size of the drop off in how many adults regularly smoke cigarettes. And the main reason for that is because health science in the last 75 years has shown us oh smoking cigarette tobacco cigarettes is actually bad for your health. I mean they were aware but it wasn't as like a widely held sort of agreed upon truth at the time 75 80 years ago so i talk about uh, camel cigarettes they hired a company called the william sd advertising agency to develop an ad campaign to sort of create an uptick in in cigarette sales for camel and the william sd ad agency came up with what is now an iconic advertising campaign called more doctors and you can Google images of this. They took out full-page ads and magazines and newspapers and billboards where they would have images of doctors smoking camel cigarettes. And the tagline would be, more doctors smoke camels. And it worked. I mean, camel sales spiked actually significantly after that. And it's because people thought, oh, doctors smoke camel cigarettes. Camel cigarettes must be good for my health. That was what people We're inferring. And I share that story because today we look at ads like that and we think they're laughable. (laughs) We're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that worked, but it did. And I share it only to say, I do wonder if 10, 20, 50 years from now, future generations will look back on us today and think it was laughable that we put these black boxes in the back pockets of 12 year olds. Like it was nothing. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and he said, you know, if somebody wakes up in the morning and the first thing they do every morning is go open a bottle of beer and have a drink, we would call them alcoholics. If somebody woke up in the morning and the first thing they did was snort a line of Coke, we would call them cocaine addicts. But if the first thing somebody does when they wake up every morning is open their phone and scroll their feeds, we call them Americans. <laughs> We've normalized <laughs> our addiction, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, just think about it clearly and plainly. We are addicts. Uh, there's some data that says almost 90%, 87% of Americans, the first thing they do when they wake up, the first sort of conscious thing they do. Outside of like going to the bathroom and stuff, right, 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 is open. It's open their phones. So what are we, you know? And I do. I wonder if we're going to look back on this era uh, in future years and just think, how in the world did we think that this was normal and acceptable? So uh, that was the point I was. I was trying to make with with that story, and um, I still think about it often. You know, I I, I really do think future generations are going to look at us and, and say. How in the world? How in the world do they look that, live that way?
1: Open your eyes. What can you see around? Wind of the open sky over the siren sound. This is a dream. Getting the royal scar. Holding a diamond blade. Throwing it far. I, I think you're right. And I, I hate the fact that you're right. Not, not that you're right. It, it's more of how do you stop? Like it's the alternative, like with my kids. And I think this is what I struggle with. is just a parent. And I know that Indy Crouch has written on this. So I need to delve into it further. And even Felicia was song and her book, restless devices and what it's doing to us spiritually and great books. And I agree with the truth and principle it's in the everyday practice that it's hard. And then you, you talk about these fruits of the spirit self-control. I have to tell that to myself. Like it's, it's almost like dopamine fasting, you know, where you put your phone aside and say, I'm not going to go to it. Yeah. Everything you were writing. I was just, I was getting more mad, not at you, (laughs) mad at myself. Cause I was like, I just, cause I do feel controlled by it. It doesn't feel that it, it is. If I'm free, it feels that I am constantly looking for approval in that next hit. And that's just my own little self-admission there. You know, I feel like you could be my counselor.
0: Well, you're not alone. I'm with you. I think most people are when they're honest with themselves. But talking about it is one of the first steps, you know, acknowledging the problem and then uh, say, OK, I'm going to surround myself with a community of people who can help me sort of stay accountable to the commitments I make. You know, in some ways, I, I didn't write the book to make people mad, but in some ways, I'm glad that it's sort of having that visceral effect on, on people.
1: Well, I've surrounded myself now with Amish people because they're the only there ones that go. can really help me do it. So there's that Levi right. over there and, <laughs> and yes. Ichabod. And whatever. Yep. Stay
0: busy raising <laughs> cattle and churning butter. That's the way to do it. That is you know, the it's life. funny, though.
1: Well, you know, it's <laughs> funny, full admission. I actually grew up with Amish people. So oh, no way. Cool. I did. I, I grew up in a small town in East Central Illinois. It's the eighth largest Amish settlement in the United States or the, mm. um, and maybe even the world. So my town was like 2,000 people and we had 5,000 Amish around us. Oh my God. So in in the community. So I went to school with Amish kids growing cool. up. Like they, they yeah. went to our, they had their own schools. The one room schools are still a yeah, thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and like I've had, I, I I have a guy who supports the show. He actually gave me a tour of this one room schoolhouse where he learned German as a boy and he in, in the United wow. States because they taught German and it would meet during the non-harvest time. So in the winter, because the kids were working all year long, but when I, when I grew up with these kids, they would have technology, oddly enough. And like, I would, I worked at a grocery store and I would, I would deliver groceries and they would have a stereo. We used to call it ghetto blasters in the back of the, of the buggy. And it would be shaking with music. Oh, you remember Weird Al Yankovic's like Amish paradise? Like that was totally my world, man. That was totally my world. But the funny thing is, is that I know a lot of, Uh, like my, my, um, one of my relatives does, uh, we call it Amish Uber where they actually drive Amish people because they have cell phones. That's the crazy thing. They have cell phones. So I'm just like, you can't get away. Even with the Amish, you
0: can't get away. Yeah. Well, the Amish have a website. I think I mentioned it in the book, yeah, the Amish have a website. what? I don't remember I that. That was so fascinating. yeah, yeah, maybe that was a different thing piece I wrote or something. I, yeah, I' Amish people have I don't a website. remember that in the book.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean in what <laughs> Amish goamish.com. I mean something. I, who knows yeah, there's, who knows. <laughs> it's just in our world today, because I remember we, they would try to find rules around the Amish, so they wouldn't have television in their house. they would have it hanging out of their window. Like as long as it wasn't in the house, it was almost like, like Judaism, you know, like le- the legalistic aspect, like you couldn't have years ago, they couldn't have a phone in the house, but they could have one outside on the telephone pole in the yard. So that it was some so cr-
0: fascinating.
1: It's so, cr- yeah. it, it is fascinating just from a cultural perspective. But I, I, to me, that was normal growing up. Like I, I, that, that was my world. So you just mentioned that. And I'm, every time you talk about this kind of, I mean, you don't mention digital fast, but I, I think it was, was it Any Croucher, Felicia Wu Song, which said, treat your, your phone like a three year old, you know, put your, like a toddler, yeah, put it Dana to bed Crouch. before you do. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And so so yeah, I'm just Andy like, Crouch. and I, I've been looking for the Amish, like, Amish, like your way of life is attractive to me. And then they're on their phones. And I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe <laughs> not. Maybe not. You're not as attractive as I thought you were. Early in the morning.
0: Before the sun appears, before the world has even stirred, let's get out of here.
1: You talk about news media and selling division. I mean, we're in this divided time right now, and that's what the news media does. But why is it important for us to keep in mind that the media is trying to divide us? And
0: what can we do about it? I mean, I, I think most people are aware now and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of data about the sort of steep decline in trust, American trust in yeah. journalism. So I think there is an awareness. Uh, but even though there is an awareness, I think, you know, news media has, though we don't trust it as objective journalism anymore we've sort of accepted it for what it is and not only accepted it, we've sort of embraced it. So um, this is interesting, but it goes way back long before the digital age. You think about, you know, a lot of your listeners will know the name Neil Postman. Yeah. Who uh, was a, a social commentator, philosopher in the 80s and early 90s. And he, um, you know, his, his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in it, he's critiquing Not just technology, but, but specifically media and specifically television and television media. And he talks a lot about how I've, I found his work so helpful and so prescient. Like you Mm -hmm. read some of his stuff and you're like, Oh my gosh. It feels like he's writing yesterday, not Mm -hmm. 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but he, he writes about how information has changed where before the telegraph. The fastest that information could travel was about 30 miles an hour, which was the speed of a train. So if something happened in New York City for that information to get to even a place like Philadelphia, which is nearby, it wasn't instantaneous. It was literally as fast as the news could travel on a train from New York to Philadelphia, which would have been, you know, several hours or an hour or something, right? And then the telegraph, the telegraph changed everything now through like Morse code and electrical wires, the news could travel instantaneously. And Postman talks about how in that sort of new technological leap, and now exponentially so with the internet, where I can know what's happening on the other side of the planet, literally in real time, information goes from being localized And effectual is, I think, his word, essentially meaning information intended to affect something, to affect change, information designed to help the person in the local community respond. To the information rather than that now, because information can travel so quickly and I can know what's happening on the other side of the planet in real time, even though I don't live on the other side of the planet and there isn't really much I could do about it because I'm not locally there in that place because I have the information. It's an ineffectual sort of commodity. I just know it. And then what happens is because I can't really do anything about it, what do I do? I just sort of shout and scream and give my unwarranted you know unsolicited sort of opinion about the matter into the digital ether and thus we have outrage culture and all the shouting and screaming it doesn't really do anything it's just so he talks about how information in the television age specifically he talks a lot about how information has become an entertainment commodity it's not really about doing something in the world it's just meant to entertain us and i think the digital age has amplified that exponentially. So, so all of that to say, you know, for me, I I think that's a big part of where the sort of news media as entertainment, um, again, awareness, we're we're aware that it's not objective journalism, but we have to become more aware. We have to become aware really from, for them. I think the bottom line Is to entertain us, not entertain us in the classic way. Like, Hey, this is fun. Look at all the, not like that, but keep us engaged. Essentially keep our attention, hold our attention, grab our attention. And the best way to do that is, and the data shows this, the best way to do that is to incite our rage, to incite our anger. You know, the, it's literal psychological data that's been proven. That's what keeps us scrolling and swiping and clicking and liking and sharing. And so because of that, you know, that's what they're going to put out there. The stuff that makes us angry and the stuff that is most polarizing, the stuff that's going to keep us yelling and screaming at each other as consistently as possible. We have to be aware of that and realize in that whole sort of schematic, these are the words of Tristan Harris, who's a design ethicist, you know, we are the products, like human beings, our attention. You know, Tristan Harris calls it the attention economy. Our attention is the product being bought and sold on the sort of digital marketplace. So we have to be aware of that. You know, the more we give it our attention, the more we are being bought and sold and exchanged for the benefit and the the profitability of the bottom line of media companies. And I'm not anti-media necessarily. All I'm saying is especially for followers of Jesus, we have to engage thoughtfully so that we can, again, you know, ultimately for this purpose of being formed into the likeness of Christ and not formed into the image of whatever it is media wants to form us into.
1: I have so many things that I want to ask because you cite Romans 12, one and two, and you mentioned not being conformed to the the pattern of this world. And you mentioned the world areas that like Aeon, the era, the, that spirit of the age, because the age is trying to conform us into its image and how it thinks and how we go about it. And we are being evangelized, as James Chung says. We're being evangelized by the world all the time. It, but we have to have a counter practice of doing that. But you also mentioned of speaking like kind of the truth into it, of having become more like Christ, how God wants us to, or Christ, how he wants us to live in the middle of this world. As you were talking, the word, I couldn't remember the word that you written. Ultra- how do you say it? All, ultra crepidarian? Uh, yeah. Ultra crepidarian? I yeah. mean, I'm butchering it because he says sutor, nay ultra crepidarian. That sounds really cool. Oh God, yeah. I'm doing it, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shoemaker, not be on their shoe. I, yeah. I explain that
0: because <laughs> people yeah. are like, what
1: are you talking about right now? I thought this was a yeah. thing about
0: Jesus. Yeah, I didn't really know that word either until I did some <laughs> research. Ultra crepidarian. <laughs> It's this big, giant, fancy English word that essentially means somebody who sort of speaks beyond the limits of their knowledge, you know, speaks beyond what is helpful to others. And it comes from this ancient story about how uh, there was this famous ancient painter. He's painting this uh, portrait and uh, a shoemaker comes by and he comments to the painter and he says, you know, the shoes that you've painted there. They're inaccurate. The laces don't look that way, you know, because that's his area of expertise. The painter says, oh, my goodness, thank you, shoemaker. You're right. I'm I'm not a shoemaker. I don't know. I was just kind of going based on memory. Thank you for correcting my error. So he repaints the shoe. And then the shoemaker sort of infused with this courage and confidence, like, oh, my goodness, I just corrected this great painter, you know, this well-known painter. I'm going to, I'm going to give him more help. So he, so then the shoemaker starts commenting on all these other things that are outside the range of his expertise. And then the painter says to the shoemaker, shoemaker, not be on the shoe. Essentially (laughs) just speak, speak to what, you know, speak what is helpful, but beyond that, it's not helpful. It's not helpful for you to comment on everything in the digital age on social media, especially just go on Facebook or Twitter. We're all shoemakers now. It's <laughs> like the moment anything happens, it's like we're everybody all has experts. An opinion Yeah. Everyone's got experts. an opinion, and everybody needs to know. You know, that's and I think there's, man, one, that is exhausting. That's an exhausting way to live life. And two, it's not helpful. You know, it's not helpful. I think that we need to learn to listen more deeply and learn and be students and lead with curiosity rather than to lead with our opinion. I think you have touched on something that is not
1: too wildly held. I think there's more people that are grabbing a hold of it. But as you said, the culture seeks to divide us and people want to voice their their issue. They have a freedom to do so online that's unfettered, which is also part of the problem. You actually draw that out in January of 2019 when the video of a Native American activist Nathan Phillips, a high school student named Nicholas Sandman, went, went viral. That That's a video that many of our listeners will be aware of. But knowing that, knowing that the proclivity of those around us is to react, how do we go about cultivating this wisdom of time in an age of immediate reaction?
0: I'm not sure that there's any other way. Than to relentlessly refuse to be drawn into the chaos and the cacophony of it all. And to be okay with the criticism that comes your way that you did not respond in a timely fashion. If ever there is a choice to be quick or to um, be wise, I think all of us would choose to be wise. But there is such a pressure to be quick that often the pressure sort of pushes us beyond the the limits of wisdom. But you think about the wisest people, you know, in your personal life, they're typically the the men and women who are non-reactionary, you know, they don't react to a particular thing. They seem comfortable enough in their own skin to be able to take deep breaths and to speak when they're ready. Now, there are certainly moments, I think, when uh, something happens or maybe like in real life in front of you, some grave injustice takes place. And the most responsible Christ-like thing to do is to react and step in and even put yourself on the line in order to counteract the injustice and to fight for justice. For sure, those are realities. But I think more often than not online, that's not what's happening. I think more often than not online, what's happening is this sort of mob mentality that I have got to identify myself with a particular faction or a particular camp when it comes to a particular issue. And if I do not, I'm going to be left out there on my own in the margins, just ostracized. And I think wisdom says we've got to be okay with that. And some of it to me, this is some of the stuff I'm working on for, for future things, but some of it to me, I think is connected to a, a deep, utter sort of lack of belonging that we experience in, in culture today. You know, again, the data points out that even though we have the internet, which promised us this great global village where everyone would be connected, the reality is since the internet, people have grown increasingly isolated and lonely. We're, we're lonelier and we feel more isolated than ever. And I think because of that, we are looking and longing to belong. And sometimes what that does is it leads us to foolish decisions where we just react and respond, I think in some ways, in order to belong to a particular camp and to not feel alone. But I think the more and more people begin to think about that and then sort of go the way of slowness and patience, the more we will find, oh, there's actually a tribe there of people who don't want to just react to everything, don't feel the need to just incessantly voice our opinion about every particular thing that happens right when it happens, but of people who want to go slower and steadier and, and live more wisely and quietly uh, to live a listening life rather than a talking or a cacophonous life. There are more people than you might think who, who are there. You know, I think about the um, psychologist, social commentator and psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. He wrote this, uh, this article in the Atlantic, um, like a year or two ago, maybe a year and a half ago or something that went viral. I forget the exact title, but it was something like why the last 10 years of America have been so profoundly stupid or something like that. And he's talking a lot about social media and he cites uh, a website. I forget the name of it, but it's this big sort of longitudinal study, research study they did where they found that when it comes to politics, specifically, most Americans are what they would categorize as the exhausted majority. And I forget the exact percentage, but it's something like 70% of Americans say that they actually prefer nuance that they actually are supportive of um, the opposite political party from which they belong on a certain number of issues that they would love to be able to have a platform to work toward compromise 70% of Americans. But when you go on Twitter or Facebook, it doesn't feel that way.
1: That's the, that's it feels the 38% like
0: of Americans. Right. But going back to what we said earlier, The algorithms amplify the most outraged voices, which is why when you go on social media, it feels like the entire country is either red or blue, left or right, just cleanly and at the extremes. But that's not true. Most people in our country actually say, no, like I'm exhausted by this. I I would love more nuance. I would love more compromise. I just want what's best for everybody. That's the majority of people. But we don't feel that way online. We feel like if if I try to add nuance or compromise, I'm on the outs. But that's not true. You're not alone. Most people feel that way, in some form or fashion. At least when it comes to politics, and my guess would be when it comes to a number of issues. So, um, I think we just have to be aware of that, know that we're not alone, and and go the path of slowness and steadiness, and uh, and wisdom and not feel this incessant need to constantly just shout into the digital space about everything.
1: It's the slow and steady, I think, that wins the race. The real discipleship occurs, not in the flashy moments. I mean, we all have those moments about the mountaintop, but I think this is part of the problem with a lot of churches in that there's this, the, the feeding the moment, the hype. Hype lasts for a moment, but it's the hope that endures. And it's the hope and the real, as you said that, that you actually quote him, uh, Eugene Peterson's, you know, a long, slow, is it, what's the, the title? I've got the book.
0: A long obedience in the same direction. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's where I think that so much of what we have to do is listen. One of the reasons we picked Apollos as the name of our ministry is that if you remember, Apollos gets converted in this really weird way. He, He somewhere along the line hears about Jesus's baptism by John the Baptist. That's how he gets converted. And that's what he preaches. So he's preaching this, this very odd thing where, where Aquila and Priscilla hear him, Priscilla and Aquila, and they pull him aside to explain the way of God more accurately, and he listened. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for other people that have gone further along, who have a different perspective, but still within the b- biblical parameters to help us, like yourself. We want to hear from other people that are that are travelers and pilgrims along with us in this journey as we're all trying to navigate the waters of modernity in this pluralistic post-truth or post-everything world of how to follow Jesus, and this is why I enjoy your your work is that you're addressing something that we're all dealing and feeling with, but you're showing us how to follow Jesus in the middle of all of it. It's not an easy thing to do, though, because you yourself are in the same same pathway. Um, there was another thing that you mentioned. I wanted to uh, draw out here. You mentioned that Jesus is frustratingly patient. Describe what you mean by that. Yeah,
0: he's just slow. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is just slow. I mean the the classic example, amongst uh, many examples, the classic example is uh, when the synagogue leader Jairus comes and he's like, uh, you know, my daughter is about to die. She's twelve can you heal her? And Jesus is like, let's go. Yeah, I'll heal her. And then they start going. And then there's this woman who's been suffering from this condition for 12 years. Mm -hmm. So since Jairus, daughter was born, this woman has been suffering and her condition would have ostracized her from society and her family and friends. And for a variety of reasons, she thinks that if she can just, just touch the edge of Jesus's cloak, his prayer shawl, that she can be healed of her ailment. But because of the laws of the day, the Jewish laws, um, ritual laws of purity and cleanliness, she was not allowed legally to touch other people, but she risks her life and limb literally and like fights her way through this crowd just so she can touch the hem, the edge of Jesus's cloak, this prayer shawl. And she does, and then she's healed. So you think, end of story. The woman got what she wants. Jesus is well on his way to go heal this little girl. But then Jesus stops and you're like, What? Why? The woman, the bleeding woman already got what she needed, which was physical healing. But Jesus stops and he's like, Hey, who touched me? And then <laughs> his disciples, are so funny. They're like, uh, dude, there's like a million people around. Everybody's touching you. And then Jesus says, No, 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 no. I'm like, someone touched, touched me. The, the Greek word is hapto which actually literally means like to cling, you know, like to clutch. There's a desperation in that word. So he's like, no, no, no. Somebody reached out and like clutched me. I felt power go out of me. And people were like, oh my gosh, what? And basically the woman confesses. She's like, it was me. This is why I believe there was healing if I would just, you know, touch the edge of your cloak. And then he like spends this time affirming her. He says, daughter, go in peace. Your faith, your faith has healed you. And you would think if you're Jairus at that point, you're like, are you serious, dude? Like, let's go. My girl needs you. She, this woman's already healed. What, what is this? It's, she's good. Like, what are we doing here? And yet that's how Jesus rolls. That's just how he does it, you know, time and time again. I mean, he's like late to stuff. You know, you think about Lazarus's sort of resurrection and, uh, you know, is <laughs> Mary and Martha are like, uh, dude, you're late, you know, and yet Jesus still um, you know, brings them back to life. And but he weeps with them, you know, before he does that. He's able to like sit in moments that are very human and he's never rushed, he's never in a hurry. He accomplishes a lot, but he's never hurried. You know, and you think about that Dallas Willard line, which became a a best selling book for John Mark Comer, you know, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And uh, that's Jesus. Jesus embodies the unhurried life, you know? And man, I think for followers of Jesus, if we want to be formed into Christ's likeness, that is going to be one of the most countercultural virtues that followers of Jesus can embody in an age when everything is fast. Everything is rushed. Everything is hurried. And There's always something else to do. There's always the big next to get to. I think followers of Jesus need to be the sorts of men and women who say, no, like, I, I'm not going to rush. I'm not going to hurry. You know, I'm going to linger and live life at a slow and steady pace that's manageable. How are you doing?
1: Hard to tell. Kind of tired and old.
0: Another fall, but a few. All right, I know now you're the right side, keeping me loose in a world wound tight. Let's slow down. You're helping me to
1: slow down. You know, it's also interesting you mention how Jesus enters into this pain. You mentioned that in in the book on page 82, you talk about entering into pain. You quote a friend who is uh, running a foster ministry and telling people, basically, if you're gonna enter into this ministry, you're gonna enter into pain. Why is it so imperative that Christians recapture this idea in some ways of suffering and enduring suffering for the kingdom in our
0: service? Yeah. You know, Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him. And I don't, I I think, you know, semantic satiation, you hear a phrase over and over and it just sort of loses its meaning, its power. I think that's what's happened with that, with the idea of the cross. Because we wear crosses around our necks and, you know, and we see them as icons in our church buildings and in our homes. We've forgotten that at the time for Jesus in the first century world, the cross was the equivalent of like an electric chair. It would be the equivalent today of wearing a necklace with a little, with a little gold electric chair hanging around. It's an in, it was an instrument of death and not just death, but a humiliating, violent, extremely painful death. And that's what Jesus says to do is take that and follow me. And he said that before he died on the cross and was resurrected back to life. So it didn't even have that context. He literally is telling people at the time, hey, take the electric chair, take carry your electric chair, sit in your electric chair and follow me. And people would have been like, what are you talking about? That's like sadistic and weird and crazy. But Jesus doesn't pull punches. He doesn't apologize. It's like, yeah, that's what it's going to take. You're going to have to die to follow me. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us after Jesus's death, resurrection and ascension, the writer of Hebrews says, you know what Jesus did? He went to the cross, but he did it for the joy set before him. I was like, what? <laughs> what? And essentially, I think what all of those things are getting at is resurrection life only comes by way of death. You, there is no resurrection without death. I mean, by nature, there is no resurrection without death. And what Jesus offers us is not a comfortable life. It is a resurrected life, which means we have to die. And one, all of us will literally die and experience literal resurrection. But the invitation also is that we live a death today to experience resurrection life today. Death to our own personal hopes and dreams and plans for life, death to our own ambitions and our own um, desires, sinful fleshly desires, all of that. We we put those things to death so that we might experience resurrection life now. And that is a path of suffering. It is not easy to put your life to death. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for you. It's not easy for anybody. Death is not fun. That's why uh being a Christian, being a, a deeply committed follower of Jesus is not easy. But Jesus never promised it would it would be easy, you know? Um He promised that it would be enriching, that it would be fulfilling, that it would be in John 10, 10, life and life to the full, but not that it would be easy to get there. So there's no easy way around it. There's no, you know, I can't pull punches here. I wish I could sort of sugarcoat and say, like, actually ah, it's not that bad, you know? It's just like If you do step one, two, and three, you know, you can manage. It's like not that hard. No, like it's hard. It's not easy to follow Jesus, but it's totally worth it. Um, It's worth it. But the path there is, is in many ways, a path of suffering and a path of death. Which isn't very attractive for many.
1: You said that forgetfulness erodes Faithfulness, and then you mentioned three things. You actually cite this. Uh, this I'm not sure if it was a psychologist, psychiatrist, displacement, trace decay, and retrieval failure. Forgetfulness,
0: erodes. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, in the digital age, we're moving so fast, and and again, it's sort of it's an attention economy, and everything is trying to grab hold of our attention. That um, our feeds, our social media feeds, our news media feeds they are constantly flooding our minds with new ideas, new concepts, new stories, all of that. And when that happens, memories go in a number of directions. That's where all of that retrieval failure and decay, uh, all of those things sort of come from. And people could read the book and sort of, you know, get get more of the details. But essentially, memory doesn't just happen, you know? There are certain cues, external cues, internal cues that are required to spark our memory. And it's one of the reasons why I think like the rhythms and rituals of Christian faith matter so much. It's one of the reasons why we gather regularly to sing songs. It's not just because, uh, you know, it's a thing to do, it's actually in part a sort of communal resistance against all of the overload of information that tells us that the world is a particular thing and there's a particular way things are unfolding. We sing these songs and we sit under biblical teaching to remember over and over again. Oh yeah, there is one king of the universe and he has always been and will always be in control. And this whole thing is headed somewhere, despite what things look like right now. It's one of the reasons we do that is to spark our memory to remember there's a God who loves us. He's with us and he's for us. And he's taking the story somewhere. And I talk a little bit in the book about uh, the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. It's so interesting. You know, God tells Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh and free his people. And he does. And then the people of Israel leave Egypt, slave slavery in Egypt, and they are on their journey to the promised land. And in one chapter, the Egyptian armies are after them and there's the Red Sea before them. And God does this incredible miracle parts, the Red Sea, they cross on dry land, the Egyptian armies come chasing after them. And then the waters come crumbling, crashing down on them, drowning the Egyptian enemy and the people of God, they rejoice because God has clearly miraculously rescued them. And what they do is they sing a song. They sing a worship song to God. And then just a couple chapters later, you find the same people forgetting. They just sang a song about how God miraculously rescued them from the clutches of their enemy. And now they're like taking their gold earrings and crafting idols and worshiping these golden calves. How does that happen? It happens because they forgot. They just had bad memories. It's like, God just did this for you and you forgot. And that's what I mean. When there's like this overload of information, overload of like all, the, all that's wrong in the world and clickbait news and like, oh my gosh, we forget. No, God is still God. He's still in control. And we find ourselves worshiping at the altars of, you know, whatever it might be, politics or ideologies or media or whatever. And I think this is one of the reasons why, again, Christian practice and ritual uh, and worship and being with the people of God and and reading the scriptures and prayer, all those things are so they're so critically important because without them, uh, we forget and forgetfulness leads to idolatry.
1: In the book, you talk about playgrounds where you have playgrounds with boundaries and, and playgrounds with, without them. I mean, yeah. and you mentioned that children would much rather play in the one with boundaries than the ones without. And in some ways, some of these boundaries, quote unquote, are tangible reminders of who we are to be. And how we are to live, so the the complete freedom doesn't really doesn't really help much. How can people follow what you're doing? I know your your time is short. We need to finish up our time today, but how can people learn more about what you're doing?
0: Oh gosh, um, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I have a little website. It's just jkimthinks.com. dot com, and uh, most of my work is is up there. So if anyone's interested, you can go.
1: Well, Jay, I, I hope that people will do that. I do hope they get the book. Get both of them. Analog Church and Analog Christian. What's the next one gonna be? Is it analog church? What do we have? Analog no. pneumatology, <laughs> analog spirit. I mean, what are we that's gonna do? That's right. That's right.
0: No, uh yeah, I'm I'm kind of done with uh analog series. I um I'm working on a book right now. The title is still being worked out, but uh the, the subtitle is Hearing God and Speaking Good News. In a world of pundits, personalities, and influencers. So, still kind of exploring the idea of digital media, but less a digital analog divide and more about how we can hear God through all the cacophony and noise. And then how we can actually speak in a way that is, is good, you know, brings good news to people rather than just contributing to the noise. So, Um, There you go. That should be out at some point in 2024, I think. All right. Well, thank you, Jay, for coming on Apollo Swattered. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Sometimes our conversations are really deep. I mean, I know we call them deep conversations, right? But they go down really deep into the foundation of what it is that we believe. Because really, it's those foundational principles that help shape everything else that we do. They challenge our assumptions about how we look at things or bring things to light about why we think the way that we do. They help us to see ourselves through the lens of other cultures. And today's conversation with Jay is just as challenging, but in more of an embodied, how do I live this out now kind of way? You know, let's face it. We all have to face this. Technology is everywhere, and it's harder and harder to opt out. No, if you listen to our show, you know that I grew up around Amish people, but even Amish people have cell phones now. I mean, like, there's no place that you can go. Like, I used to love going to camps up in the middle of the woods in the top part of Wisconsin because there was hardly any cell phone reception. It was wonderful. But it seems like I just can't get away. And honestly, I'm not sure if I want to all the time, but yet I just keep scrolling and I have to be preaching and teaching this truth to myself. Because we have to figure out ways to live into the fruit of the Spirit. It's crucial for us as believers in Jesus. Our conversation just scratched the surface of what Jay covers in the book. I really do recommend it to everyone, young and old. It's full of the kind of biblical wisdom we need today. And if you're interested in questions of faith and technology, I would also recommend listening into our conversation with Felicia Song and her book, Restless Devices, episodes 95 and 96. So stay tuned to our next conversation with Daniel Yang, Matt Sorens, and Eric Costanzo about their book, Inalienable, how the marginalized kingdom voices can save the American church. That's what we're about is helping you to reimagine and redeploy. And one of the ways to reimagine is to see how God has brought the nations to our culture in this moment to either be reached or to help revive the church where it's at. Also, be sure to rate our podcast on whatever platform that you listen. Please give 5 stars because you know by doing that you actually help other people to water their world because it helps other people to find this show and you become our hero and you get a little bit of applause at the same time. I want to thank our Apollo's Water team for helping water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water.
0: Stay watered everybody. And I'm on a roll.